Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Abortion is a huge subject that many, many minds have spent years thinking about. Uh, It causes much anger on one side, but also a lot of heartache on the other. Before we get into the conversation today, however, it's important and revealing to know that in Canada, in just one year, uh, these are stats from 2015, just in the year of 2015, there were over 100,000 abortions. In fact, from 2011 all the way to 2015, there were 100,000 each year, which means that's half a million babies aborted in five years. Now, many people are apathetic towards this issue. They don't really know what to think exactly. Uh, Many of us in Canada are people pleasers. We're kind of really concerned with trying to keep this sort of quote-unquote peace with others. Um, And we do that to the extent that we actually compromise on our own beliefs. So whatever may be your thoughts on abortion, this conversation uh, this week will certainly help you. So here's a conversation with Stephanie Gray. With me today is Stephanie Gray. Stephanie is a speaker and an author, primarily on the subject of abortion. Now, she's spoken at many universities. She's debated many people who don't share necessarily her side. And and also, she just recently spoke at Google this year. So I'm interested to hear about that. But anyways, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Stephanie. Thank you, Isaac, for having me on. Yeah, for sure. The first thing, what's your what's your story? So we'll talk about, obviously, we're talking about the kind of emotional and uh, controversial, serious subject of abortion. But before we get into there, what, what is your story kind of on a personal side? Well, you know, I was raised in a Christian home in the Fraser Valley. Um, I am a Vancouverite in that I was one of the people who now lives in Vancouver who was born there. But my parents moved to Chilliwack shortly after I was born. And, you know, I was raised in a really um, faith-filled environment. I was taught to not only love the Lord, but live that love out in service to others. And um, my parents um, very much were involved in the pro-life movement. My mom volunteered at a pregnancy care center. And so from a very young age, I became familiar with the pro-life message and the pro-life cause and took that on as something that you could say was more my own uh, when I went to university and moved back to Vancouver to go to UBC. Wow, that's amazing. And from that point on, when you kind of dedicated sort of this time and this energy to to focus uh, on the pro-life movement, where has that taken you now? Well, it's taken me places I couldn't have imagined when, you know, I was an 18-year-old university student, you know, giving her first pro-life talk. But uh, when I was in my first year of university, I heard an American pro-life speaker named Scott Klusendorf. And he said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. Wow. And when he said those words, it was like the Holy Spirit grabbed my heart. And it was like the Lord asked me, will you be one of these people working full time to save babies? And to make a long story short, that speaker started mentoring me from a distance. 
I finished my university education, but became very convicted as a result of his presentation and and further formation by him that I was really meant to do full-time pro-life work as he was doing in the context of being a speaker and an educator. So I began full-time pro-life work when I was 21 years old. I started a nonprofit that I ran for about 12 years. And that took me all around the world, um, which I continue to do now in a slightly different context, but still doing a lot of speaking and educating. And as you mentioned, it took me all the way to Google headquarters in Mountain View, California in April of this year. And I could never have thought at the beginning of my career that I would have an opportunity to be in such a secular environment and be able to proclaim the anti-abortion message uh, to the attendees as well as to the broader audience on Google's YouTube channel. Yeah, that it's just incredible to consider that because, you know, I can only imagine the different views and sort of the kind of antagonistic views and kind of feelings that people would have there. So I guess, you know, doing what you do, like any kind of missions work, because in a sense, you are doing missions work in a kind of indirect and sometimes direct way. But man, you like you probably get a lot of pushback, especially maybe at some place like Google. You know, there often is pushback. I have to say what was a pleasant surprise was that the environment of Google was very receptive and welcoming. The audience had good questions, but I didn't experience hostility that I have experienced in other contexts, such as university campuses when, you know, I do debates and there's been attempts by abortion supporters to shut the event down. So thankfully, there wasn't that degree of hostility. But you do see the spiritual battle that is raging uh, when it comes to this topic, because God values human beings. We are set apart from all other creation in that we are image bearers, and it's human beings that Christ died for. And so when human beings are under attack, it's because Satan doesn't like human life made in God's image. And so in the context of abortion, we see image bearers are under attack. God wants us. He wants to protect us, but Satan doesn't want us to be protected. He wants to attack us. And therefore, that's why there's such a spiritual battle that rages when this topic is raised. Yeah, and that, that's such a good point. You kind of just jumped headlong in there, but I think you just, you hit on such a, a, a nail piece just to summarize what you said, the idea that we, since we are created in the image of God. We we are like uh, mirrors reflecting God's glory. So what abortion does is that it just destroys these mirrors, which disallows God's glory to be shone uh, in this world, which is terrible. But anyways, again, this is this is emotional. It's controversial. It's serious. People are listening, maybe have suffered w- through an abortion, uh, considering it. They have a family member or friend. So uh, anyways, we, we understand that, obviously, and I'm sure you understand that too. Stephanie, you've talked to probably tons of people, but I just I want to ask, can you just sort of define um, abortion? Sometimes when an issue is so heated and kind of large, we can sometimes forget definitions, especially um, if you're sort of separated from it. And you don't know someone that is struggling with it. What, 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 what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the direct and intentional destruction of the youngest of our kind, of a human being in his or her mother's womb. And I think the reality is, even though that's what abortion does, a lot of people can blind themselves to that fact. As you pointed out, there could be people listening who have had abortions or who are contemplating abortion. And often we will lie to ourselves or be in denial that the baby's a baby or be in denial that abortion kills because it's we don't want to admit that that's what abortion would do. 
um, because we don't want to perceive of ourselves doing something that would be so destructive. But if we look at the facts, one of the questions I'll often ask people is when a woman takes a pregnancy test, if the test comes back negative, and this would have been an unplanned pregnancy, but if it comes back negative, does she ever go to the abortion clinic? And people always say, well, obviously not. So then I ask, okay, what is it then about the positive pregnancy test that is that, that the test is telling her? as opposed to the negative test, isn't it telling her that someone else is there, that there's the presence of another individual, and therefore, if there is another individual, then shouldn't we value that individual as much as we value ourselves? Yeah, for sure. That's so good. Now, it's kind of interesting. For someone recently, I'll just say this, recently, uh, about a few months ago, uh, we were talking with Professor Owen Strand from Midwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. We were talking about um, just sexuality and the different views of of sexuality, especially even amongst Christians nowadays. And and I asked him to sort of define the progressive kind of emergent church understanding of sexuality um, as if he was a progressive Christian. And he kind of said it. So I'm, how would someone on the opposite side of your end define abortion? Because I'm pretty sure they wouldn't use the word the destruction of one of our, you know, of one of our race at its very first stages. Right. You know, I think someone who supports abortion would just simply call it a termination of a pregnancy. And, uh, you know, with that definition, I always like to ask lots of questions. So I say, well, how, how would you define termination and what is a pregnancy? So usually the language used is not well defined, which is therefore makes it easier to embrace. Right. Yeah, for sure. Now, this might this next question might sound really simple. We've kind of touched on it, but I do want to ask it just to sort of see a little bit of the history. But why necessarily abortion? And why has this been such this this contentious issue for years and years and years? And and how far back does this even go? And has it always just been between you know uh, the kind of the secular world and and Christians? Or or can you speak into that a little bit? I mean, certainly. The reality of the born killing the preborn has been something that has gone on in various forms throughout human history. Of course, setting aside the born killing the preborn, just humans killing humans, we have since Cain killed his brother Abel. This this destruction of the family bond, unfortunately, is a temptation that some of us humans will act out upon. Certainly, it's been in the you know 20th century that abortion became. Um, much more prominent and um, first legally accepted, socially accepted. In Canada, abortion first became legal in 1969 under select circumstances with the approval of a therapeutic abortion committee. And it was in 1988 where that law was thrown out and no new law was replaced so that as a result, abortions can now happen through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason, because of our government-funded health care, it, it means abortions are largely covered by uh, our tax dollars in Canada. So it's become very widespread to the point that we have 100,000 abortions a year in Canada, a million abortions a year in the United States, and over 40 million abortions annually around the world. Wow, that is, yeah, it's, it's a tough subject. It's, uh, it's tough to hear that. Um, it, it's kind of it can be difficult sometimes to uh, con- just consider the the widespread um, and and also to even think about it in this way that you know 
maybe you can speak into this, but the the different, I guess, because of technology and scientific um, advancement, the ability to, um, you know, have an abortion today would look a lot different than 100 years ago, even, uh, or, or maybe even more so back. So I, I think that because we've sort of opened up, because culture has opened up this avenue that's a lot easier, legal, all these different things, it creates a choice for, for women and men to have uh, that they might have just not have had, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Sure, it's it's far more accessible now. You have, you know, physicians and and nurses. The medical profession have normalized abortion as a legitimate practice, as opposed to, you know. Uh, before 1969, where you did have illegal abortions, and sometimes they were being done by physicians, but other times they were being done by people who weren't exactly physicians. So there, there is that that change that has gone on for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now it's kind of a question: um, Why are so many Christians, and I, I like, why are so many Christians? Do you think um, sort of apathetic or or ignorant? Of of just sort of the the epidemic that is abortion. A lot of people, you know, they might say with their lip, you know, lip service, yeah, I don't agree with it. But there doesn't seem to be this this zeal or this sort of realization that oh my goodness, forty million, like this is this is crazy. Mm. Hi, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> explanations perhaps that that could answer that question. You know, what comes to mind is um, a quote actually from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil rights leader. And in his letter from Birmingham jail, a document I had to read in first year English, which I highly, highly recommend. At one point in his, his um, essay, he says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. There was a time, and he says it was in those days when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. He said in those days, the, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat, he said, that transformed the mores of society. And, and I would say, unfortunately, what has happened today is we've kind of moved away from the spirit of the early church where instead of just recording where things are at, inst um, or, or instead of actually changing, turning up the heat, changing the therm thermostat, um, we're just recording where things are at. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to communicate a message that might result in some persecution. But Christ taught us, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We're to take up our cross and, and we're to follow Christ. So I think there's a resistance to persecution. That's one explanation. And I think the other thing is um, our own sin can blind us and cause us to be fearful. And I think the reality is abortion is something that has touched both Christians and non-Christians alike. I think of the Old Testament story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, that David lusted after Bathsheba, um, had sex with her. She got pregnant. And because Uriah was away in battle, it would have been known that Bathsheba was pregnant by someone other than her husband. So what did David do? He had Uriah killed in order to conceal his sex sin. And I would suggest that um, in some cases we're dealing in, in Christian circles where abortion is a modern day version of that story where we're killing in order to conceal sex sin, where we don't want people to know what we've been up to outside of marriage, for example. And so whether it's as a result of a Christian directly having an abortion, perhaps to conceal sex sin, or whether it's a result of a Christian perhaps driving a friend to an abortion clinic, 
our direct or indirect involvement with abortion causes some to say, oh, well, maybe maybe I can't speak up because we don't want to own up to our sin. But instead, what we want to do as Christians is to say, wait, if I'm a Christian, it means I need Christ, which means I'm a sinner who needs a savior, which means I need to own up to this sin. And I need to lay this sin at the foot of the cross. And I need to beg God's mercy and trust in his mercy and be transformed. That's so good. And it, it kind of does reveal the sin of pride in so many of our so many of our lives, the ability to not even want to confess that, you know, it's so it's so pertinent. Going back to the first point, though, I, I really like that the idea that, uh, you know, suffering for righteousness sake, in a sense, and I'm wondering um, if you if you could think something up, if nothing comes to your mind, that's totally fine. But could you explain to us, maybe perhaps give us a maybe an illustration or a story of feeling that kind of joy in the midst of persecution because you are on the front lines. Like not all of us are going to be able to do what you are doing. Well, you know, what comes to mind is um, the ministry that I used to work for that I co-founded the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Um, Besides the public speaking that I continue to do, when I worked for CCBR, I did a lot of exhibits, pro-life exhibits that we would take to university campuses. And as a team, we would engage in students who passed by the exhibit, engaged them in discussion and debate. And I experienced such profound um, hostility at those events. There were abortion supporters who would gather in large groups at times. They would chant, they would yell, they would swear. And yet, amidst that persecution, I experienced um, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Words and and messages that would come to my mind when I would have the opportunity either to speak to an individual or a large crowd if I was um, doing what we called open microphone, where I was able to amplify answers to people's questions as they stood at the exhibit. And I would get these divine inspirations and be able to communicate messages that you could see amidst the hostile faces there were softer, more receptive faces. And I remember one event in particular, a woman came up after I had just dealt with a very angry crowd. And she said, I saw your exhibit a year ago and I was one of them. I was so angry at you guys. I went home and I Googled abortion and I, oh, I, I just couldn't stand you. But as a result of searching more on the topic, I came to see how wrong abortion is, how right you guys are. And I'm just back a year later to say thank you for what you're doing. And and to experience that, you know, conversion of someone there amidst the hostility, it's like, yes, Lord, I'll be faithful to you and and you will work in the hearts of people. That, that's so good. You know, and, and hearing from that, and I kind of want to move this into the next question here. Here you have a woman that goes online, she starts searching abortion and she, she sees that, you know, this is wrong. And, you know, she comes back and she explains that to you. That's so cool. And obviously there are so many uh, non-Christians. There's people with completely different worldviews that are pro-life and they are, you know, with you on all the things that you do say. But I want to ask specifically for you, because obviously you are Christian. How has the gospel shaped your beliefs on abortion? How is it, yeah, how's it shaped it? Well, in every way, and and two things come to mind, just in in reference to um, those events, I would just like to say, I, I believe the Psalms are such a powerful method of prayer that put words to um, the experiences of our heart. And often before doing those exhibits, when I had very hostile crowds, and even before presentations, I will go to the Psalms and and really find that um, they are powerful, powerful prayers. 
Um, in terms of, you know, the heart of the gospel message, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever might believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I always like to ask people, and this has had a profound effect on me, when did Christ enter the world? When did he experience the human experience? And, you know, as Christmas is approaching, we often will say, oh, well, Christmas. But the reality is, no, Christ entered the world in human form nine months before Christmas. And I remember, you know, reflecting on the first chapter of Luke when the angel Gabriel visited Mary. And upon telling her that she would conceive and bear a son, she was then informed that her cousin Elizabeth, um, who had been barren, was also um, with child. And so Mary makes with haste. This is her cousin Elizabeth, and the scriptures talk about how when Mary entered Elizabeth's home, Elizabeth says, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And, and as Christians, we often look at that passage and say, okay, there, you know, there's John the Baptist, he's leaping for joy, so you know, I guess life exists before birth, but I take it a step further and I say, no, wait a minute, why did John the Baptist leap for joy? And he leapt for joy because when Mary entered Elizabeth's home, she didn't enter alone. She, in a sense, was a type of walking tabernacle bearing in her womb God Almighty in the human form of a tiny embryo who had probably not even implanted yet. And it was this late-term fetus, John the Baptist, who recognized the first trimester embryo of Jesus Christ, and he leapt for joy in the presence of God Almighty in human form. And so that, to me, is the heart of the gospel, that, that God sent his son, and he sent his son as an embryo, and that's who came to save me from my sin. That is, that's so incredible. And if that hasn't, you know, obviously made effect on listeners that may be sitting on the fence, I, I do want to ask this to you, Stephanie, to the many who do sit on that fence of what necessarily to believe about abortion, you know, what would be an appeal from you to those that are listening they don't really know what they're thinking about. Maybe they are just kind of living in this, you know, plug in their ears. I don't really want to deal with that because they don't, maybe, they, they're, maybe they're proud. Maybe they just don't want to put themselves out there against culture like that. What, what would be your appeal to those? Hmm. You know, a question that comes to mind is, is to, for all of us to consider, do I believe in human rights? And as I have asked many people around the world that question, I always get the answer, well, yes, yes, I believe in human rights. So then I, I would ask, if we believe in human rights, then what about the pre-born humans' rights? And some might say, well, that's, that's not a human yet. And, and I would just ask, well, what are the pre-born child's parents? Is the pregnant woman human? Is her partner human? If yes, then wouldn't it follow that the offspring of those two humans must be human as well? So if at the most basic level we believe in human rights, then that which has been conceived from two humans is the same being as us and therefore has the same rights as us. And then as believers, if we go a step further and say, well, beyond believing in human rights, I believe in human value because the human being is made in God's image then we simply need to go back to, okay, well, if human beings are made in God's image, and if science teaches me that beings which reproduce sexually begin their lives at fertilization, and therefore, because two human beings reproduce sexually, their offspring will begin its life at fertilization, that means that individual becomes an image bearer 
at fertilization. And therefore, if I value the other because he or she is an image bearer, then I have to value that child at fertilization because that child is an image bearer. Yeah, that that's so good. And you know, it's exciting to see, uh, obviously, you and the work that you're doing. It's exciting to see different organizations. I, I, I follow an organization called the Human Coalition on Twitter. And throughout the day, I get these updates just saying, baby number, and then they'll just put a number, was saved today from this city. And at the end of the day, they'll just have the whole total number. And it's, it's encouraging to see that. But maybe, you know, for me to like that tweet, that's not necessarily me engaging in combating uh, abortion. What, what would be some ways for the sort of average Joe or Jane to, you know, participate in that sort of, you know, combat against this? You know, because again, like we said, we're not going to be able to go and maybe necessarily talk at Google or universities uh, about that. So, yeah, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think we all need to realize we are people of influence um, in our own networks. And there are people that you are connected to that I am not, that therefore means you are better positioned to engage them on the topic than I am. So I think all of us need to do an inventory. Who do I know? What job do I have? Am I a teacher, a social worker, a pharmacist, a nurse, a doctor, Um, even a mom or a dad picking their child up from school? And am I talking with parents as we're waiting for our kids to come out? And so in the context of the workplace, the social setting, the church setting, what can I do to initiate a conversation on abortion, whether using a news story as an impetus, a tweet that you saw online, make reference to it and then say to the person you're speaking with, gosh, you know, this came to my mind because I saw it and it occurred to me, I've never asked you, what do you think about abortion? And then have that conversation right there. And then sometimes people say, well, I I won't know what to say. Um, And I say, well, you know, I've written a book on that. (laughs) If people people go to loveunleasheslife.com, they'll get my website where not only I, I regularly blog, but they can click on my book, which is Love Unleashes Life. So loveunleasheslife.com. And in in there, that's a book written to Christians to help them learn how to dialogue with the culture, both with believers and non-believers. So to be able to make a non-sectarian argument to the culture based on human rights as to why we ought to reject uh, abortion. So to to initiate those conversations and then to get involved in community pro-life groups, whether it's an educational group, a political group, or a pastoral group that's helping women in crisis or or doing post-abortion counseling to start directing one's energies in a very concrete way to pre-existing organizations that could use more help. So good. Thank you so much for those practical ways. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time and your wisdom today. That's all we can do right now. But if you want to hear more, if you're listening and you've heard our conversation, you've heard uh, about Stephanie and the work she's done, uh, perhaps you're interested in those books, um, you can head to that that website. She just said loveunleasheslife.com. I'll also put the links on the episode page as well. But anyways, I want to say once again, thank you so much, Stephanie, and I hope to have you back on the show again soon. Thank you, Isaac. God bless you. We're so grateful for you joining us and and for our time with Isaac and Stephanie Gray Connors. I'd encourage you to check out more from Stephanie and her book, Love Unleashes Life, by visiting Stephanie's webpage at loveunleasheslife.com. And we're also excited to announce that in just a few weeks, Stephanie Gray Connors will be joining host Daniel Markin to discuss her newest book, Start With What? 
10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. And thanks again for joining us today. And please remember, you can listen to all the new InDoubt programs by signing up for the InDoubt podcast or by visiting either indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hope you'll join us next week as we continue to have important conversations about faith, life, and culture. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In Doubt is a ministry of Good News Global Media designed to speak into faith, life, and culture. These are challenging conversations for young men and women who have chosen lives for Jesus, while at the same time are constantly engaged by the culture and philosophies of the world around them. It causes us to ask about the relevance of the Bible, how to engage our world, how to share the gospel, and perhaps the most difficult question, how does the young follower of Jesus live a holy life? Join us each week as we dig deep into faith, life, and culture. For more information about InDoubt or to offer a gift of support to this young adult ministry, visit InDoubt.com or call 1-844-663-2424. Thanks.